Chapter 19 of 2 Samuel. You turn there. I'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of truth. Heaven-sent, God-breathed word that saves us, makes us whole, and keeps us on the straight and narrow path. We thank you, Father, for all your blessings. We pray tonight by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would open the eyes of our understanding, help us to see what you have for us tonight, that we could see it, grasp it, understand it, put it into practice, and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the dust is settling in the bloody battle, the civil war, which Israel has been in, is uh, coming to an end and a sad battle because it never had to have happened. Uh, you'll recall the king has um, been running for his life. King David left his throne and ran for the hills with Absalom, his son, uh, pursuing with a huge army. And David only had a few, uh, comparatively speaking, loyal followers. And uh, the two sides eventually had to engage 30 miles east of Jerusalem uh, through the Jordan River and to the east where now is present-day Jordan. That's where the battle took place. And uh, David's one request, you remember, was protect my boy, he told his three commanding uh, officers, go out, defend ourselves, but for my sake, in fact, I have it here, the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom, each of the commanders. And that was last chapter, chapter 18. And, and that just, that really spoke volumes for David's heart because this man is trying to kill David and um, has caused a lot of bloodshed. Now, um, as providence would have it, just for context, Absalom uh, has been spotted and his big head uh, and had that fabulously proud hair, uh, head of hair that he was so proud of, I should say, was caught in an oak tree. And uh, you know, he was seen riding on a mule. He got stuck and the mule kept going. And you know, for years I've had problems with that mule because it just didn't seem very dignified that he's on riding on this mule until I found out that a mule actually is half horse and half donkey. I didn't know that. I just pictured little Eeyore. You know, it's like, what in the world is King Absalom, who's so proud and so fabulously handsome, and he wants to be the king of the world, what's he doing on a mule, for crying out loud? Do you know that they can run faster than Arabians and Appaloosas? Now, I didn't know that. And that it was really royalty's privilege to own a mule because they were so rare. And so now I've cleared that up for you. All right. And so there he was, uh, hot-headed Joab, the commander-in-chief, um, uh, disregards what David has to say and um, does Absalom in. The shofar sounds, it's over. And now turncoat Israel, uh, who has left David for Absalom, has heard that their dashing leader has been dashed to pieces on the ground. And so everybody's going to retreat home now. So now what? The nation is in chaos. Uh, Israel is divided. Uh, is Now the big question is, since Absalom's coup failed, uh, will David return to power? 
And if he will return to power, how is that going to happen? And what, pray tell, is he going to do with all of those treacherous uh, turncoats? Because everybody really, almost the whole nation, uh, turned against him. But now he's coming back, question mark. Okay, so here's the context. Uh, Absalom brought down by his own pride. He was impaled in that tree. His corpse was thrown into a ditch and a bunch of rocks piled up upon it. So the battle's over, and the Cushite, he's an Ethiopian runner, delivers the message to King David. He gets into King David's presence, and King David has one question. Well, he says, the war is over, and he has one question. What about Absalom? And he says, Absalom has been killed. And last we hear, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept, and as he went... He said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And now we pick up verse 1, chapter 19. Now it was told Joab, commander-in-chief of David's small army, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, or the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Listen up, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased." Now, therefore, get up, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you don't go, not one man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. So let's pause there. Uh, number one, Joab schools King David, a rebuke that's really going to cost Joab a lot. He's going to get fired by the time we finish this chapter for that, for this, and some other reasons. Now, Maha, Mana, Mahanaim, that's a hard word to say, but that's where they are right now. They're not in Jerusalem. So they're in that city across the Jordan. And Joab is right with his rebuke. David's kind of lost his perspective because he's grieving. He's kind of in shock. His whole world's been turned upside down, and now he's lost his second son, Absalom. Now, because of this heartbreak and loss, he's really not thinking clearly. And the repetition from chapter 18 until this chapter, with all the repeating of the song of O Absalom, my son, O Absalom, my son, over and over again, you can tell that David is not in his right mind. So let's talk about David's excessive mourning, because it's unproductive to do that. 
Now, both the Old Testament and the New Testament really distinguishes between uh, what kind of mourning is appropriate for a believing heart and uh, what's different about a heart that has no faith. In the Old Testament, it says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and that he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so even in the Old Testament, we see when there's a great loss or tragic circumstances, God, his everlasting arms are sustaining. And a believer is expected to trust God even through tragic losses. You know, Job is, of course, the number one prime example of that. In the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes to the Thessalonians uh, that they should not be uninformed so that uh, you will not grieve like the rest of mankind who do not have hope. And so the believers, of course, feels great pain and loss, especially a loss of a dear one like a spouse or a son in this particular case. But because we're believers, we have the promise of God we have the presence of God. Uh, we have an assurance. We have the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And we're, we're expected to grieve in a different way because the most important thing in our lives are the eternal purposes and consequences of God, the reality of eternal life. And so we are, as Paul said, hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, uh, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. You know, as a good dad, uh, I had to watch Anne of Green Gables about 150 times with Jordan, and you know, I, I liked it. It was all right. And you know, Marella, the mom, she has a, had a line that always stuck with me, and she was getting down on Anne about something, and Anne just threw her hand upon her forehead and said she was in the depths of despair. And Marilla was walking up the stairs and she said, listen, Anne, to despair is to turn your back on God. Christians don't despair. We just don't. Because God never fails. His faithfulness never comes to an end. We do not despair. We can grieve. Uh, God is not against feelings. David Guzik wrote uh, this, there's such a thing as excessive mourning rooted in unbelief and self-indulgence. Now, I want to be careful here because there are people with recent losses in our congregation. So listen to me with the grace that I'm extending. And I'm talking about something uh, that goes to the extreme, that's unproductive. Uh, when we mishandle mourning, you know, careers are ended, marriages split up sometimes, or people just stop walking with God. And you know what that tells you? It tells you what was more important in their lives. When you take something away and then you stop walking with God, you're just saying that that thing was more important than God. But when the things are all taken away and you're still walking with God, you're saying God was the most important thing. And so this is what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, one more writer. Be careful not to slip into the poor me mode. The continual pity party is all too easy for the sinful heart. Uh, you become the center of attention. Expectations of you are lowered. And the whole world is made to revolve around you and your loss. And now you have 
the upper hand, but not in a healthy way. And so those are the reasons why we're sort of given to staying in mourning a little bit longer uh, than necessary. So uh, David's great grief here, you know, it's not just about losing Absalom, it's all about uh, being a failure. He, he's been a failure with his kids, uh, he, his own fault as a father, his part in the ordeal. You know, he didn't discipline Amnon. That's, that was a problem when he violated Tamar. He's been overindulgent. And that whole terrible sin with Bathsheba and her husband really kind of planted the seeds for this whole thing to happen. So now he's not fully responsible because everybody answers to God for their own sins. But he's come undone because the whole thing is upon him. And he's realizing uh, his part in the equation. The problem here is that he's not just a dad. He's a leader, you see. And uh, leaders don't have the luxury of falling apart uh, when they're in their own private pain. That is pastoral leadership 1A. It's Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday. Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday. Tornado, hurricane, sunny. Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday. Absalom or no? Sunday, Wednesday. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. There's always somebody who needs a pastor or a Christian for that matter. Therefore, that is the reason that mature leaders or mature Christians uh, know how to be other-centered, deal with their pain between them and their friends and God in a healthy way, but they don't fall apart. David is, is um, uh, his face is covered in verse 4. That's a burial cloth. That's a way to grieve, and he's weeping out loud and wailing. And so this causes the soldiers to steal into town. So in other words, instead of coming back with this great big victory, proud of what has happened and very quite glad, they're coming in like thieves, like they did something wrong. That's what that means, that they're slinking into town like, oh, man, we just did a terrible thing. You know, we broke the laws, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's really uh, affected other people. And uh, time for a wake-up call. So Joab, verse 5, commander-in-chief, blows a head gasket when he hears about this. I mean, now, he's the one who killed the king's son. I'm convinced David does not know this at the time of the tirade. Uh, I think that he finds out a little bit later that it was indeed Joab's spears thrust into his son's heart. And so he's going to barge into the king's presence, as you've read, without any formalities, because this, he's going to unleash his tirade. Uh, David has deeply offended his troops, and he has. And here's the paraphrase. So, so Joab hears, man, this guy is, is crying out for this murderer, and we just killed him and saved everybody, and he's more concerned about his son Absalom. He says, paraphrase, seriously, David... Are you kidding me? The whole army is disgraced like they did something wrong. They should be feeling good about their victory, and you're making them feel terrible. Snap out of it, man. Maybe you'd prefer Fabio be alive and all of us dead. We saved you, your family, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your concubines from the murderer, and you're weeping for him. You love the bad guy and you hate the good guys. What is wrong with you? Clearly, we who risked our lives for you mean nothing to you. It's all about you and Absalom. Oh, Absalom. Oh, Absalom. Oh, Absalom. 
I'm surprised Joab didn't get killed there myself. But now he says, now get up, dry your eyes, and get out there and cheer those guys up, or you're going to lose every last one of them. And you think the first rebellion was bad? You haven't seen nothing yet. So David gets up. He complies. And uh, I like verse 8. He arose and took his seat. Now, sometimes you just do what's right, even though your feelings are not on board. Did he feel like doing that? No. Was it the right thing to do and for the good of others around him? Yeah, it was. Was it the good for the nation of Israel? Yeah, it was. Sometimes you have to do that for the good of the family, for the good of the marriage, for the good of your Christian life. I don't feel like reading my Bible. So what? I don't feel like worshiping tonight. So I don't feel like going to church on Sunday. I don't feel like talking to her about the Lord. If, if you are a feelings-motivated kind of Christian, you are immature and unproductive and not a very good spouse either because you have to learn how to do the right thing motivi- motivated by the truth itself that there's duty involved in life and it has nothing to do really with your feelings. I'm all for feelings. I want them all, but you know they seldom all line up. Amen? So we're going to head back to Jerusalem now. Um, it's time to go home, David, to cross the Jordan, go that 28 miles back to the palace. The nation needs some healing. So 8b to 15. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land, of, out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh, flesh and blood. You're my family. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? You're my living relative. God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. All right, Joab's gone. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they are so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Okay, so we'll pause there, number two, playing the blame game. Now, the return of the king. The king has survived Absalom's Absalom's attempted overthrow, but the kingdom still is not restored. Now, the blame game started, and here's that first paragraph. Here's the conversation that's going on, the bickering in Israel. Let me show you a map, and it'll help you to understand what's going on. The kingdom of Israel, when you say Israel now, you mean ten tribes. And when you say Judah, you mean two tribes. And so David is from Judah, the southern kingdom. And so the, all, all, Israel and Judah were all traitorous. So they all joined. They all left David. And David was only left with a couple thousand loyal people and mostly all from Judah. All right? And so his home clan, when he says you're flesh and blood, he's talking about people from Bethlehem, which is in Judah, which is in, so therefore, 
the, the southern part of Israel. So here's the conversation. You can leave that up. The conversation, the quarreling that's going on there is that uh, both north and south rebelled, right? And so here's what they're saying. Okay, we messed up. So here's the conversation. We messed up royally, all right? David was our king who saved us from the Philistines, and he was a pretty good king. He was run out of town by his son Absalom, but Absalom, who we made king, died in the battle. And now here's the, the funny question. Now they says, so why aren't you guys doing anything? So they're doing this to each other. So they're rehearsing the whole story. Hey, okay, we're all in trouble. David's left, Absalom is gone. We can't have Absalom as king. What are we all gonna do? Well, this is what we did. This is what we did wrong. Now, why aren't you guys fixing it? Both of them saying the same thing to each other. You know what the problem is, that first paragraph is? Because the people who reach out to reconcile first are going to have to bear the responsibility for what went wrong. So the bickering and the arguing back and forth is because nobody wants to admit, all right, so we have to say that we blew in and ask forgiveness and humble ourselves. And you know, that's really so true. When there's a uh, falling out, a relational problem, uh, nobody wants to be the first one especially if you feel that you're the victim, right? But the mature Christian will be the first one to reach out. And you'll, you'll find out now David is the one who was wronged, but he's going to assist the southern tribe of Judah to get on board, and that's going to bring the northern back as well. But, you know, that's how, we, that's how we are. You know, relationships, marriages, too. I don't want to be the first one. Why, do, why, do, why is it always my responsibility to be the one who reaches back and tries to make it right? I don't know. Are you the, only, are you the one who always does that? Oh, and you're complaining about it? Do you want equal opportunity to be the weaker and the more immature Christian? <laughs> I guess you can. If you're tired of being the mature one, then you can downgrade to the immature. Uh, so while the clans duke it out, thank you for that picture, David's going to do two things. Uh, first, he's going to uh, encourage Judah. So because Judah really sided with Absalom. And so he's going to say to Judah in this second paragraph, hey, it's okay. And he's going to speak through those two priests, Zadok and Abiathar. And he's going to say, listen, there are no gallows waiting for you in Jerusalem, no hard feelings. You know, uh, he's going to say, we're family, Judah. Now, are you guys going to let the other guys be first? It, don't let the northern tribes beat you to it. Blood's thicker than water. Let's do this. You're welcome. And the second big move he makes there in paragraph two is, is that he fires Joab, but get who he hires. He hires Absalom's general, who is also David's relative. But he's hiring the guy who led Absalom's army. So he's firing Joab and he's telling Judah, hey, everything's okay. If I'm going to put uh, Amashai in charge, or Amasa, I should say, sorry, Amasa in charge, then everything's cool. I mean, he was the big leader against me, but now everything's cool and he's going to be the new Joab, you see? And so that encourages them and the tribe of Judah fears relief, feels relieved and Judah comes out in full force to help ferry the king and his supporters across the Jordan River. Now, um, 
It's time for the journey back to Jerusalem. And now in the, the verses from verse 16 on, we're going to see, we're going to meet various kinds of people with various different situations, all depending on how they, how they had relationship with David when he was out of power. So that is going to tell the story here. So as we're going to meet one by one, different people. So when the king returns, and try to catch where this is going, where the, when the king returns, he meets different kinds of people. And different kinds of things happen with those people, depending on how they treated the king when he was not visibly on the throne. So there's a spiritual application there, certainly. Certainly high anxiety for those who openly opposed David when he was on his way out, okay? So none, none more vocal than this dude Shimei. So we're going to read about him, 16 through 23. And Shimei, son of Gera the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. You'll remember that he was the one cursing King David on the way out of town and throwing rocks and dirt at him and, and calling him a murderer and a scoundrel and a worthless person. So now he's hurrying down to meet the king. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his good pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan, and he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Okay, so number three, when the king returns, the groveling begins. And it's time for some anxious moments for some rebels. So the last time, as I mentioned, through Bach, Ha-reem, David's darkest moments. They're in chapter 16. Uh, you'll remember he was running for his life. He was hungry. He was exhausted. He was barefooted. Dirt on his face. He was, his whole life was upside down. And there in the shadow, Shimei, yelling and cursing and taunting. And it's funny because Abishai, the very same officer going out of town, said, let me go cut his head off. Just give me 10 seconds and I'll bring his head right over to you on a platter. And then he said the same. David said, what do I have to do with you? What is wrong with you? God is using him to humble me, man. I kind of deserve this in a, in a way. Just leave him alone. Now they're coming back. This guy heard, hey, Absalom dead. David's back in power. And his first thought, uh-oh. <laughs> and so he takes a thousand guys and he says, come on. Let's just go and, and, and eat humble pie and throw ourselves at the mercy of this king. And so he comes up and he says, hey, I know what I did. 
I'm sorry. He throws himself down on the ground. And the same officer, David's nephew, Abishai, says, uh, I want to cut his head off. And he has to say it again. He has to say, what do we have in common? You guys, you, you sons of my sister, Zeruiah, is David's sister. So every time he says that, that's a familiar refrain. Constantly, he's constantly telling them, you guys just want to do bloodshed, and I want to reconcile. What is it about you and I? We can't find a happy medium, and so... I like, really, I love Shimei's model repentance. I don't think it's real, but he does the right thing. I mean, he, he gets a clue. The king is coming. I better get my life straight with him. Falls down, prostrates himself in humility, owns what he did wrong. He says, I, I did wrong. Have mercy. I know I've sinned. Uh, here I am to make amends. I brought a thousand helpers. You guys need help over the Jordan? Well, let us help you. And uh, uh, this approach really works. But it, it will work with the King Jesus, the same thing. But it has to be before Shimei's see his face. Because Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, uh, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see him because most of them are in trouble you see but if you take <laughs> we're kind of the shimmies who actually repent before we see because we get the word he's coming and we've done wrong and we want to be made right with him and so we are the real deal when it comes to getting right with the king who's returning now i got to give you a little bit of uh, uh, context for the next character that comes up, Mephibosheth. And you'll just remember this. It's, it's an easy. You remember 2 Samuel chapter 9. On a random act and whim of kindness, King David was thinking about his best friend, Jonathan, who died in battle. And he went looking for somebody related to him, the household of his enemies, to bless him. And so somebody said, hey, there is. Jonathan had a kid. And he, he's lame, he's handicapped, and his name's Mephibosheth. And he said, bring him in. He, David adopts Mephibosheth into the king's household, gives him Saul's estate, makes him very wealthy. Now, the, the guy who did have Saul's estate is named Ziba. And when Ziba heard that this crippled man was now his master and owned everything, he wasn't very happy. Now he's serving this lame man, Mephibosheth. Now, Ziba hated that, you see? And so as they're going out, and David is running and fleeing, um, Ziba comes with lots of provision and starts to flatter and schmooze David. And David, on his way out, says, where's Mephibosheth? He's not supporting me? And he says, oh, yeah, no. Mephibosheth, after all you've done for him, you know what? He's hoping to be the next king because he's blood-related to Saul. And so he slanders Mephibosheth. And so now we're going to meet. And, and so what does David do? Rashly, he goes, you know what, Ziba? You take all the land back. And Ziba goes, oh, thank you so much. And he got all Mephibosheth's land. So David reversed the decision because of the lies of Ziba. Now we find Mephibosheth, lame man, just on his donkey or mule or horse. And, and here's what happens. Now Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, 
came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet or trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. He was in mourning. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Mephibosheth, why didn't you go with me? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant Ziba deceived me. For your servant said to him, So I actually told Ziba, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. All right, so we'll stop here. Number four, when the king returns, it's time for the truth to come out. It's one of my favorite ideas about the second coming. Proverbs 18 and verse 17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And so David was in no place to make a good judgment call, and so he believed the lies of Ziba. And I believe that Ziba is a total liar and that Mephibosheth is telling the truth because I think that we see a test. David tests him with wisdom by saying, All right, I've heard the story. You know what? I'm going to divide it half and half now. And watch how Mephibosheth handled that. Does Mephibosheth want more? Does he go, are you kidding me? Why does he even get half? Why can't I have the whole thing? He doesn't do that. After all, he's been slandered and lied to and all his land got taken away and all of that. But no, instead, he just says, you know what? You know what's important to me? It's not the money or the fields. Let him have it all. What's important is that you, were, you could have ended up dead, but you're alive and well, and you're back. That's all that matters to me. Give him all the land. I'm happy that you're alive. Ah, uh, we don't see what David did, but I think David reacted to that, and I think that he got more than half. That's my personal belief. But anyway, I, I love what uh, Jesus said. There will be nothing hidden on that day that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be made known or brought out into the open. Listen, there's so so much misinformation out there about what people say about us and think about us and people who slander, make stuff up and make our lives difficult. And we, we spend inordinate amounts of time concerned, trying to write everything and make sure every little slanderous thing gets uh, righted and put right. You know what? Why don't we just trust the Lord? Because <laughs> in the end, the truth is always going to be revealed. And that's what the Lord promises. And that just frees me from having to uh, go out there and correct everybody's understanding about every little thing, especially with social media. Oh, my word. Everybody's talking about everybody's talking about everybody's talking. You know, layers and layers of tweets and and Facebook and and Instagramming and all of this stuff. And everybody just is in everybody's business. And uh, the best thing that we can know is is that when there is uh, misinformation or things that aren't right, God says that in that great day, uh, there'll be no questions. Now, let's wrap it up here. 
Now there's a, a third person that we want to meet before David gets to the palace. He runs into Barzillai. Barzillai. That's a hard one. Barzillai. Let's just call him Bars. <laughs> the Gileadite, or whatever his name is, had come down from Rajalim, and he went uh, with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Now, Bar, I can't say his name, Barzi, was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had uh, provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was very wealthy. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you. Uh, I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Now, let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I will do for him what seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over to the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Shimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half of the people of Israel brought the king on his way. So number five, and almost done here. When the king returns, there'll be a reward for the faithful. So... Barzillai, an octogenarian, he's in his 80s, he's providing for David when it wasn't cool to provide for David, when it could cost you something like your life. And, you know, here's a good thing to remember, the king never forgets a kindness. So we've seen on the king's return different kinds of people, anxious people who had done offenses to the king, people who have regrets and fears, hypocrites who will be exposed, and now the faithful who will be rewarded. So Barzillai, he's a wealthy guy, he's 80 years old, and when David was down and out, you know, he helped him. Uh, Rajalim, where he's from, 50 miles. So he's come, this 80-year-old has come to welcome David back uh, some 50 miles away. And what what a great guy, and the king's very grateful. He says, hey, Old man, come to the palace with me. You'll have no worries. And Barzillai, he's content where he's at. He says, man, I just wanted to see you one more time and come into uh, Israel again and take the throne. But he's a realist. He says, you know what? I'm 80. How many more years am I going to live? You're offering me all these wonderful things, but you know what? You know, and I'm going to sit at your table. I can't even taste the food anymore. So good. You know, I can't taste it. You know, beautiful sights, I can't see them. You know, you've got beautiful music in your courtyards and in your palaces. But guess what? I can't hear you. You know what? I have a son, really. The word can mean servant or son. I have a son. Would you do that for him? And David's like, I'm going to take care of your boy. And that boy goes with David 
And later in in 1 Kings, when David is dying in his last wishes, he brings up that name again and says, bless that family and show them kindness. So it's really cool that this son was with the father and the son will be blessed and kind of given a spiritual inheritance because of the faith and the goodness of the father. And that's just a beautiful little thing there. Matthew 25, when Jesus returns the true king, he's going to have some rewards for those who are faithful. And he's going to say things like, thank you for comforting me and uh, loving me and caring for me and encouraging me. And people are going to say, when did we ever see you, Lord? And he'll, he'll say, when you did it to the least significant believer or child of God, I took that very personally. And so when the king returns, there's going to be rewards for people who were faithful to his children, right? And uh, I I think about, and I'm closing down here with one more paragraph, but I think about the love that I have had in my heart for years for those who ministered to my children when I couldn't minister to them. When I was in the hospital for two months at UCSF, I've mentioned this before, but uh, I wasn't allowed to see the kids Uh, for two months and I could wave out the window and Barb would bring them but they would talk to me on the phone and I had cancer treatments 10 years ago this happened and I would talk to them on the phone and they would tell me all these wonderful stories about people ministering to them taking them places loving on them and they would say oh dad we had so much fun today so and so came over and so and so took us to Disneyland so-and-so took me hunting. So-and-so came over and, and, and fixed the go-karts. They'd always, the church was coming in. I'll tell you to this day, when I think of those people, to this day, words cannot describe to you the esteem I hold in my heart for those people who ministered to my kids when I, I couldn't do it physically. And, and God is in that place where, where he's invisible and he's got represent representatives here with hands that can love on his kids like that. And when he gets back, he's going to say, oh, man, thank you for doing that. Come into my palace. Come live with me in my palace. And, and in that day, all the bars of lies, they're all going to say yes. <laughs> they're not going to say no. I want to stay home. You know, older people, you know what? They don't want to be uprooted at, at, at the end of their lives. They want to stay, like they said, uh, like it says, they want to stay put. They want to live out their lives where their parents uh, lived and be buried in the family plot there. And just that's, that's the way it is. But to be able to say, how about my son? And then uh, just a wonderful thing. Let's finish up. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers? Okay, so now they're, they're back fighting again. All right. So the 10 tribes of Israel come to the king and they say, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with, the, with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. Because the king is our close relative. That's why, neener, neener. Why, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? The men of Israel answered to the men of Judah. We have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Okay, let's wrap up by, listen, just put down there, big, 
big babies, big Jewish babies. All right, finally, uh, the last point would be until the king returns, there's always going to be unrest and bickering even among God's people. So what's happening here? The northern 10 tribes, their representatives come down, right? They've got 10 tribes. They come down a little late to the party. They've already crossed over. Now, verse 41, who, do, who does Judah think they are, the 10 tribes say? And hogging King David to themselves, you know? And so Judah says, you want to know who we think we are? Hello, we're his blood relatives. That's who we are. All right, and, and then what do they say back? You know what? You guys are two scrawny little, little states. We're 10 states. Therefore, we have 10 times the investment than you have in him. Now, we're the majority. He should be our king more than your king because you're two little punk states. We're 10 states. And they say, uh-uh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's the way it kind of goes. And Judah, it says they're smaller, but they shout over them. And so they're more fierce. So, you know what? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Are you a peacemaker? Are you a troublemaker? Reflections for Second Samuel 19. I'm going to put them up here. These are just one little minute takeaway that I come away with. Number one, mature believers are sustained through mourning by their faith in God. Number two, mature believers do the right thing even when they don't feel like it. Number three, mature believers are the first to try to reconcile when there's a relationship difficulty. Number four, when the king returns, and I mean the king, right? There will be anxious people who have offended him. There will be hypocritical people who, who will be exposed as the truth is made known. There will be victimized people who will be vindicated. And there will be faithful people who will be rewarded. And there will finally be an end to all contention and unrest forever. And don't forget this one. The king never forgets a kindness done to him, his children, or his cause. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your great love. Thank you for your word truth and thank you for this chapter filled with things to think about pray that the holy spirit help us to meditate and reflect on your great truth In jesus name amen